Right, morning everyone. Great to see everybody this morning. Um, I wonder if you can think of any moments in your life when perhaps something big was on the horizon and you just needed to find the right word for that moment. And maybe it was a job interview or an important reunion, perhaps first impressions at university or a wedding speech, that type of thing. But times when a moment of significance had arrived and you just wanted to make sure you found the right words for it. Well, for me, a moment like that was when I asked my wife, Becca, out the third time. (laughs) So, um, to give you a little bit of context, I am married to Becca, and our story can be neatly summarised like this. Boy meets girl, boy likes girl, girl not so sure. Um, Three years later, boy decides to ask girl out, and girl politely but firmly declines. Um... Six months on, the landscape seems to change. The boy decides, I'll give it another go. And girl says, I'll give you a trial. Um, Boy fails trial. Um, So uh, after a few months, boy picks himself up again. And in all honesty, the landscape does seem to have changed again. I'm picking up vibes that perhaps it's worth one third and final attempt. So boy plucks up the courage to ask girl out again. That's the context, okay? So picture me standing in my somewhat overgrown student garden, 84 Tiverton Road. Um, I've got my phone in my hand and I've decided I'm going to give Becca a call. This is a, a moment where I want to get it right. My priority is don't put her under any pressure. Keep cool. You know, this isn't a big deal. Whereas inside I'm thinking this could be a really big deal. Um, so I want to get the words right. So I rehearsed what I was going to say. I was going to say, Becca, it's a lovely day. I wondered, can I go for a walk with you so we can talk about stuff? You know, just stuff. Nothing, nothing intense. Um, but when I picked up the phone and I heard Becca's voice on the other side, what came out was, Becca, can we go for a walk about stuff so I can talk about you? And I was like, oh, no. That's, that's the very opposite to what I wanted to do. Talk about heap on the pressure. Um, I'm glad to say that Becca did decide that she would go for a walk with me and I got all the right words out and the rest, as they say, is history. Um, This morning, we're going to start a new series in Oasis and it's going to be looking at some of the most powerful and well-chosen words of all time in the lead-up to the greatest event of all time. It's a series we've called Love Poured Out. We're going to be spending the next eight weeks looking at the 24 hours leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, as recorded in John's Gospel. Chapters 13 to 18 of the Gospel of John give us the most amazing account of the words and actions of Jesus leading up to his death and his resurrection. And every word is well chosen, completely unflustered, unlike me. And every action Jesus undertakes is packed full of meaning. He knew that his crucifixion would plunge his disciples into great confusion and sadness and loss of hope. But he also knew that what was about to happen would be the greatest expression of love poured out ever to be seen. His suffering would be for the healing of many. The world would never be the same again. So Jesus wanted to give words of comfort and clarity and hope, both for his disciples then and for us now, so that we could really understand what Easter is all about and allow it to transform us, his love poured into our hearts, so that it might then overflow from us to those around us. So over the next eight weeks here in Oasis, we'll be 
looking at Jesus' words. And three things will shine through time and again. We will see who he is, what he does, and how we follow. Who, what, and how. So that's where we're going. Now, why this series, why now? Well, believe it or not, Easter is just around the corner. But much more than that, 2017 for Oasis is a year of adventure. A year where we're moving into God's plans and purposes and stepping out in faith and leaving our comfort zone. It's a a year of new locations where we're going to be moving on from the cricket ground at the end of April and into a new place to base ourselves. And there will be new opportunities and there will be new challenges. It's an adventure. And two things are vital as we move on if we're going to enjoy this adventure. They are, number one, that we stay together, that we look out for one another, that we enjoy love poured out for each other. And they are, number two, vitally, that we remember who our God is, that we look steadily upon him and ground ourselves in him, being comforted by him and having our gaze filled with him. So that's why this series now. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to start in John 13, and it's going to appear on the screen. I'm reading from the NIV, starting in verse 1. It says, It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that's why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, You'll be blessed if you do them. Okay, incredible passage. What's the context? Well, Jesus is with his 12 disciples about to celebrate the Passover meal. In 24 hours' time, Jesus will be crucified, hung on a Roman cross. The disciples didn't know it, but this was going to be their last meal with Jesus, the last supper before all that happened. And John gives little mention, actually, of the meal itself. No mention of the bread and the wine and of how Jesus established the sacrament of communion. Presumably John feels that's been well covered elsewhere, him writing his gospel after the three other synoptic gospels had been written. No, for John, he zooms in on a part of the evening that for him had clearly left a massive impression, Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And in the verses we've 
read, we discover much about who he is, what he does, and how we follow. Firstly, we see who he is. The first thing we see in this passage is that Jesus is not being carried away by events as if it's all spiraling out of control and catching him off guard. Now, he's in control, commanding every event that happens. Bruce Milne commentates that there is a hidden sovereignty at work in the upper room. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus knew his time had come. His life and his ministry had led up to this point. You know, many times in the Gospels, we read of Jesus performing an incredible miracle or giving astounding teaching, and there's all this euphoria and all this expectation, and he hushes it down and quiets it down because his time had not yet come. But here in the quietness and the privacy of the upper room, his hour had arrived and it would look different to what anyone had imagined. Passover time was the critical hour. Tom Wright explains that the Passover festival has a special emphasis in John's gospel. So right at the beginning of the gospel, we meet John the Baptist baptizing people in the Jordan. And he sees Jesus and says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look, the true Passover lamb, the one who that festival was all about. It was also at Passover time that Jesus spoke of the temple being destroyed and then rebuilt in three days. It's recorded in the second chapter of John's Gospel. At that time, Jesus was standing just outside the temple, this incredible, impressive building, but he wasn't talking about bricks. He was talking about how his body would be destroyed and then raised back up again. Him who the whole fullness of God dwells in. It was also at Passover time that Jesus miraculously fed over 5,000 people with just a few loaves and a few fish. And then straight after that, he spoke to them about he himself being the bread of life, the one whom they needed to feed upon. So throughout his ministry, Jesus has been redefining the significance of Passover. And that's what was happening again there in the upper room. And over the preceding 24 hours, they would see the true meaning of Passover. Jesus was in control of all the timing of events. His hour had come, not determined by man, but be de- determined by God. Um, do you know, I imagine for the disciples in a few, minutes, a few hours' time, when they find themselves in a garden, and then guards rush in and arrest Jesus, they probably would have thought, wrong place, wrong time. But actually, God is sovereign over all of that, dictating everything, this hidden sovereignty. I wonder how many times in our lives do we think this is just feels like the wrong place, the wrong time. Maybe it's an opportunity that's come, but it just feels like the wrong time or a challenge. This just the timing seems terrible. Maybe it's a big change that's ahead. I mean, who would choose this timing to move from one building to another in the current climate? But things aren't going out of control, spiraling out of God's sovereignty no there's a hidden sovereignty always at work in our lives a God who directs everything and is doing it always for our good but Jesus sovereignty extends beyond his control over timing in verse 3 John tells us that Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power he is God the son he had come from the father he was going to return to the father All things were under his power. It's amazing, really. I mean, the the disciples were just doing everyday activities. You know, they were getting a meal ready, probably stomachs rumbling. In the meantime, God is right there with them. All things under his power. 
They were breathing the same air as the one under whose power all things were. This power, this sovereignty, but how hidden, how different to the shows of power we see in the world around us. If you turn on your TV or look at Twitter, Facebook, the internet at the moment, you'll see many shows of power in the world. Power seems to be shouting loud, putting on a show, talking yourself up like a boxer claiming to be the greatest. Power looks like displays of money or successful business or military might. Political power at the moment seems to look a lot like making stereotypes of people who are different to you and blaming any problems on those people. Whether in the US, in the Netherlands, in Syria, in Russia, in Zimbabwe, in the UK, power often looks like hiding truth, wearing a mask, covering up embarrassing revelations about yourself so that you can exalt an image of who you want people to think you are. Power looks like being served. Nothing new to that. Nothing new, folks. In Mark 10, 42, Jesus says, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. John Stott explains that this was the show of power that was prevalent in first century Israel under Roman occupation, well illustrated by the Roman coins that would have Caesar's imprint on it and the words, he who deserves adoration. Nothing, nothing new about people exalting themselves and oppressing others. This is still the show of power we see dominating our TVs at the moment. And I'm sure that you'll have people in mind as I say that to you. But I just wonder for a moment, how often are we prone to doing that ourselves on our micro scale of power that we may have, however big or however small? How prone are we to making ourselves look better than we really are? How prone are we to blaming others when things go wrong? Preferring to be served than to serve, allowing someone else to do the grubby jobs. Preserving our own interests, even sometimes at the cost of others. I know I'm like that sometimes. I wonder whether you're like that sometimes. But here in the upper room, Jesus isn't like that. No, he's the one who Isaiah talked about in Isaiah 40, 12 to 15, who said... He measures out the waters in the hollow of his hand. The one who, with the breadth of his hand, marked off the heavens. He's the one to whom the nations are like a drop in a bucket, regarded as dust on scales. But here he is, putting an apron round his waist. Psalm 103.14 tells us that he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Yet here he is about to wipe the dust off the feet of his followers. Colossians 1.16 tells us that in him all things were made. But here he is ready to make himself a servant of those he has made. Do you know, just six days before this experience, Jesus himself was having his feet attended to. John 12 portrays the scene. We see how Mary desired to show Jesus the extent of her love and devotion in an act of worship. And so she pours this alabaster jar of perfume over his feet and washes his feet with her hair in an act of love and of service recognizing who he is, the sovereign one, the, the mighty healer who'd raised her, her brother Lazarus from the dead. She knew that the rightful response to him is to kiss his feet. But here in John 13, Jesus is the one kneeling down, attending to the feet of his disciples to show them the extent of his love. But there's nothing romantic about this scene because even as that's happening, Judas is ready to betray Jesus. 
love poured out, love betrayed. It's incredible. And yet there's a hidden sovereignty as he allows that all to happen. What does this event reveal to us about who he is? It shows us he is sovereign. It shows us, though, that he uses his sovereignty to serve. It shows us that he is a king more worthy than any other, but that he is a humble king more humble than any other, a servant king, the king of the Passover, the true Passover lamb. This passage tells us who he is, but it also tells us what he does. I don't know how you feel about feet. Um, I'm fairly neutral about feet. They are what they are, but I know some people really hate them, and I can relate to times when they are pretty disgusting. So, for example, every year, myself and a number of um, the men in Oasis Church and people outside of Oasis Church go to a football tournament and play football all weekend. It is really great fun. It is not great for your feet. Um, Blisters tend to abound. And what I've found is that if if a blister bursts and you just allow the skin to toughen up over a few weeks before peeling it off, it actually makes a really good guitar plectrum. Um, Now... True story. Now, <laughs> you can ask Becca about it. Becca thinks that's disgusting. I think it's no, second. It is disgusting. <laughs> it's, 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 also, it's also pretty economical. So, um, I'm pretty sure after that tournament, there won't be many people volunteering to wash my feet. But first century Israel, feet got pretty disgusting back then too. Everyone wore sandals, and traveling anywhere meant going along very dusty roads. And they had nothing like the sanitation we have now. All sorts of dirt and filth end up on those roads, and in turn, in between toes. Feet were filthy. So feet washing was not a nice job. It was reserved for the most lowly of people. In fact, Bruce Milne, again, explains that that was one of a list of things that Jewish slaves were not expected to do, too condescending. But Jesus in the upper room took the basin and began to pour water over the feet of his friends. And in bewilderment, they watched as he carefully took away all the filth, all the blemishes. What love. Such humility. Now, unsurprisingly, this was all too much for Peter, never one to be slow to speak his mind. He asked, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Surely not. I can't let you do that. And he was probably feeling pretty indignant towards all his mates who hadn't even said a word about it. Like, I'm going to show them, you're not doing that to me. But this act of humble, loving service was about so much more than just getting the dust between the toes. Jesus responds to Peter saying, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. Peter still refuses and Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. In that case, Peter says, not just my feet, my head, my hands, shampoo, baby lotion, let's just go the whole way. I want a part of you. Is nothing if not earnest. But you see, this feet washing was pointing to a, to a greater washing that we all need. We have stained a guilty conscience, the washing of our inmost being, our hearts, the true us. We've all got dirt on us. What's the dirt on me? Well, there's things I've done or thought or said that I wouldn't want you to know about. Things which have stained my existence. And actually, I think, if we're honest, you're probably not so different to me. All in the same boat. 
all in the same boat, stained by sin. Our hearts have curved away from God into ourselves. We've made much of ourselves and nothing of him. And that shows itself in the choices we make, in the things we think, in the words we say, in the way we treat people. And it stains us, it dirties us. Isaiah 1.18 describes our sin as being like red crimson. We carry it around, can't get rid of it. And we have this awareness that we've fallen short of our own standards, let alone a perfect God. And it means that we can have no part with him like that. Not one so holy. His holiness is beautiful. The, the Bible says that he is light, in him there is no darkness at all. But also his holiness is fierce. The Bible calls him a consuming fire. Stains just can't survive in his presence. We need to be washed. When I was at secondary school, um, we studied Shakespeare's play Macbeth. And so Macbeth is a Scottish general, and he's had this evil prophecy that he's believed that one day he's going to be king, and the whole story is about his ambition to take the throne from King Duncan, and his wife, Lady Macbeth, kind of coaxes him and gets under his skin and ridicules him until she forces him into murdering King Duncan. And then once that deed is done... The play shows Lady Macbeth tormented by her guilt and the sense of stain on her hands. She's washing, washing and saying, always a spot, a spot, get out, spot. And no matter how much she washes, she just can't get rid of this stain. Sin's like that. Probably not many of us have murdered, but sin is sticky. And we can't get rid of it, though often we try. And no amount of good works or charitable donations or religious attendance or noble acts gets rid of the crimson stain. Jeremiah 2.22, God speaks to his precious people Israel. And he says, although you'll wash yourself with soda and use an abundance of soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me. We all need washing, but we can't wash ourselves. Only God can wash us. That's why... In Psalm 51 that we looked at a few weeks ago, David cries out to him, wash me and I will be whiter than the snow. And that's what Jesus had come to do. That's what his hour was all about, washing us whiter than the snow. Jesus at Passover would be offered up for us. Each year during the Passover, the, the, that festival, the priests would, in the temple, search for the most perfect lamb. It would be a meticulous process. It had to be one-year-old male lamb, and they would spend ages examining the lamb for any blemish, any defect, any stain. And then once satisfied that this was a perfect lamb without fault, the lamb would be sacrificed for the people. By faith in this God-ordained sacrifice, the people's guilt would be exchanged for the lamb's innocence. Year after year that had happened, ever since it was first instituted when God rescued Israel from Egypt. But year after year, that was pointing to a much bigger sacrifice that God was going to make, to the real Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus. And here his hour had come. As all of that was going on still around him, the Passover festival um, kicking into action, Jesus in the upper room was demonstrating what he was about to do. Surely not, Peter objects. Surely I can't allow one so clean as you to wash one so dirty as me, but it's the only way. And it's the way that God was going to make us 
whiter than the snow, like him. Jesus is without blemish, without spot, without sin, no stain found upon him. The prophet Malachi calls him the son of righteousness. He is perfect in his bright beauty. But 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This spotless lamb, beautiful in his righteousness, would take on himself all of our ugly sin that we may be made beautifully clean like him. This is what Martin Luther called the great exchange. All I am for all that you are. At the cross, a great flood of divine love and mercy and forgiveness flowed from the pierced hands and side and feet of Jesus to wash over us. Love poured out to make us clean. It's the only way. Just as Peter presented his feet to Jesus and Jesus cleaned him. So we present ourselves to him in faith, seeing him, believing, being made clean by him. I wonder, maybe there's someone, maybe there's a number of people here today who would say, I've not known that washing. You're invited to know that washing, to know it even now as you look to him quite by faith. You can't wash yourself. He washes you. Many of us would have known that washing. Peter was quick to allow Jesus to wash his feet once he'd heard the words, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Head, hands, do it all, Jesus. But Jesus responds, a person who has had a bath and he's only to wash his feet, his whole body is clean and you are clean. And what's this about? Well, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was once for all. He declared as he died, it is finished. It's done. Having placed our trust in him, we are clean, forever clean. But many times we feel dirty, kind of aware still of the sinfulness within us. Many times we mess up. I know for me, my daily experience is there's just still so many selfish attitudes, still so many mixed motives, so many bad habits, and it's like it dirties my feet. And if you're not careful... Like me, you could get into Lady Macbeth syndrome. Wash, wash, a spot, a spot, get out the spot. Pray harder, read longer, get up earlier, do more. Wash, a spot, a spot. That's not the freedom that he's called us to. He invites us to enable him who is the only one who can wash us to continually receive his cleaning, his washing, his love, his mercy. No, he, he invites me daily, hourly, in humble repentance to come to him and allow him to serve me. This grace. It's not as if the righteous gift has been taken away. No, it cannot be. I am as clean now as I'll ever be. Because Jesus has washed me. But I just need to remember who it is that washes me. And that there's so much more to receive from him. So much more love and grace and mercy. He's the one who's the servant king. We come to him again and again and never stop receiving. That's why in Lamentations 3, 22 to 23, it says, 
The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. He is so kind, so faithful. So keep coming and allowing him to serve and to wash. Spurgeon puts it like this. He says, the Lord Jesus loves his people so much that every day he is still doing for them much that is analogous to washing their soiled feet. Their poorest actions he accepts. Their deepest sorrows he feels. Their slenderest wish he hears. And their every transgression he forgives. Perhaps today you're feeling the stain of sin. And perhaps you need again to allow him to come and wash you. Come not striving, but come receiving of the Saviour's goodness, of the servant king. He invites you, he welcomes you, he loves you more than you could ever know. So this passage tells us who he is, servant king, lamb of God. It tells us what he does, he serves, he washes us. And lastly, it shows us how we follow How do we follow one like him? By imitating the same self-giving, sacrificial love in humility. But we only do that by allowing his love to be poured out into us that it may overflow from us to everyone else. Jesus says in verse 15, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And that's not about literal feet washing. On Monday, Thursday, every year, the Pope will wash feet. That's no bad thing to do. That's a good application, a powerful experience. But that's not the sum of what this is about. It's about imitating Jesus' humble, sacrificial, self-giving love. As we continually fill up on it, it pours out from us to those around us. So briefly, what does that look like within the church community and outside of the church community? Well, within the community, it means Oasis Church is to be a community marked by humility. C.S. Lewis says that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. You know, the, the, the thing with pride is, it takes many different forms, but the common feature is we become so big in our own vision that we start to miss everybody else. Humility does the opposite of that. It's not thinking less of yourself or I'm nothing, it's just thinking of yourself less. And as a result, other people become more visible to you and you start to see their needs and seek to want to meet them. You start to see their strengths and want to encourage them. You start to see their hurt and want to journey with them or see their joys and want to celebrate with them. Oasis, let's be a community of radically open eyes to those around us, seeking to love and to serve. Do you know what? This happens so much of the time and it always blows me away when I hear stories time and again of people cleaning one another's houses amongst us or providing meals for each other, sending texts of encouragement, visiting each other in hospital, opening our homes to one another, determined to believe the best of one another, humble enough to learn from one another. Let's keep doing that, loving each other, seeing each other. With the move on the horizon, there might be some people who will find it hard to get to a new location. Let's seek to make it possible for them to serve like that. A community like that is beautiful. A community of love poured out. It's like a city on a hill. Now, I remember when I was, a few years ago, flying into L.A. as a kind of night flight landing. As I flew over Los Angeles, I could just see the bright lights of the city. It was beautiful. It was amazing. Wow. I wanted in. 
It's like that. A, a community of love poured out is like that. People want in because they see something beautiful. And the beauty is actually a reflection of the Savior who is so beautiful. Jesus said in John 13, 34, As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. They'll know we're Christians by our love. That's how they'll know, just as we know, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Bill, how will they know we've been with Jesus? By our love. Let's be a community like that. How does this work outside of the community? Just two brief applications. Firstly, we're on the move, Oasis Church. We're going to be in a new location come May. That's going to mean being surrounded by a whole new bunch of people, a whole new community. I wonder what needs there might be. We go there not to be served, but to serve. To, as it were, wash feet. I wonder what that will look like. I wonder what skills or time or resources we may have that could just be really good news for wherever we land. Seeking to allow God's love to, be, to drink it in and have it overflow to those around us. Let's be creative with that. I wonder also what it looks like in your usual place of work or activity, whether that's the home, uni, recovery programs. Maybe it looks like doing the jobs no one else really wants to do. Perhaps it looks like saying, there's no task that's too menial for me. Seeking to see those that others don't. At the moment, one of the jobs that I do is that I'm working in a hospice, as a doctor in the hospice. What does this look like practically for me? It looks like doing lots of really small things daily, which actually impact upon those that I come into contact with. So it's learning the names, not just of doctors and nurses, but also of the volunteers, of the secretaries, of the healthcare assistants, and just thanking them for everything they're doing. It looks like being quick to be the man who brings out the teas and coffees, and being quick to wash up after everyone. I, I, just last week, the week before, I was, I was washing up some, some mugs, and one of the volunteers said, oh, tough times if you're doing that. Like, what's a doctor doing that for? They're not tough times, great times. This is an opportunity to show love. Very silly, practical way, just washing up. It also means, for me, being ready to um, collect bed, bedpans and sick bowls and sit there, or, or puff up pillows, as well as prescribe drugs because it's about giving of myself in humble, sacrificial love, which just sees the person before you. It looks like listening to colleagues and their stress. Not being so absorbed with myself that, oh, you don't know what my stress is like. Yours is nothing compared to mine. No listening. I wonder what it looks like for you in your place of work, in your place of activity. Be that at the home, be that in the shops. What does it look like? Oh, he says, let's be a people of self-giving, humble love wherever we go. Not by trying really hard, but by receiving continually from him. This passage tells us who he is, how, what he does, how we follow him. Let's be a community of enjoying his love poured out and then pouring out love to those we come into contact with. Why don't we stand? I'm going to pray and we'll finish. Just wonder whether there might be people that need to make a specific response today. That's an important thing to do because it says, God, I hear you speaking in this moment and I'm going to say yes in this moment to you. And so it may be for some that you think, I've not known that washing and I want to be clean. 
I'd, I'd invite you afterwards to come in to speak to myself, uh, Gus, Sarah. There'll be some up here. We'd love to spend some time speaking with you about how that can be your experience today. Maybe that you need to know, again, Jesus washing your feet to, to get rid of that stain. You know you've had a washing, but you know that you're just feeling the stain of guilt. Jesus wants to, to wash your feet, minister to you again. Why don't we pray? Lord Jesus, I thank you. You are a good God. Oh, you're so good. Thank you for all that you are. Thank you, Jesus, that you have paid it all. All to you we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but you washed it white as snow. I pray for the first time that that would be people's experience in this room today. You know them. They're not here by accident. The timing is in your hands. You're the sovereign one. Hidden sovereignty has brought us all here today. Just pray for a washing and a receipt of your love. I pray for those of us, Lord, who would just say, I just, I'm still so aware of my dirtiness. Lord, I know how that's been my experience this week. Thank you for your washing, your grace, your mercy. Just pray for a receipt of that again, coming to you. And I pray, God, help us to be a people that don't just see ourselves, but that see everyone around us. And in humble, self-giving, sacrificial love, seek to make you known. Lord, we love you. We worship you. Amen.